to Community of Resistance, the podcast where I speak with folks who do the work of resisting the empire to try to give people who are interested in activism and advocacy the kind of practical tools they need to pursue justice and peace. I'm Derek Penwell, and on today's show, I'm excited to be speaking to Richard Becker. Richard is an organizer and Kentucky political director for the National Conference of Firemen and Oilers, a union affiliated with the Service Employees International Union one of the nation's largest labor unions. In 2017 through 2018, Richard sought the Democratic nomination for state representative in Kentucky's 35th district in Louisville. Richard is also a writer with bylines at Vox.com. In these tough times, Labor Notes and other publications writing about the labor movement and wages. Welcome, Richard. Thank you for having me, Derek. I appreciate it. Um, uh, This is good. I'm really excited about this. But before we get into all of uh, that, tell me just a little bit about how you started doing union organizing. Yeah, so that's a a really good question, and it kind of dovetails with uh, what you mentioned in the introduction about my running for office. So uh, in college, I took a semester off to work on the Obama campaign in Ohio in 2008, Uh, worked on that for about six months, and uh, really learned how to be an organizer in the context of a political campaign and really kind of got bit by the political bug uh, and went back to school, finished my degree, and spent several years working uh, on uh, Democratic campaigns around the country, worked in Iowa and Ohio and Arizona. In 2010, I came back to Kentucky and worked on the U.S. Senate race of Jack Conway, uh, who at the time was running against now Senator Rand Paul. Uh, And I don't think I need to tell you or your listeners how that election worked out. Uh, (laughs) yeah and but more than just losing that race and 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 seeing the losses across the country i kind of left that campaign a little disenchanted with uh working uh in electoral politics myself i just didn't really uh care to to spend another five ten twenty years however many years uh, of my career um, working for a person. I wanted to, to find a way to work for a cause, uh, for a movement. And uh, honestly, just started applying for jobs with labor unions. I'd worked with unions on the ground on political campaigns, of course, and so had seen them from that perspective and had a bit of a union background in my family. My grandmother was uh, a member of the United Auto Workers for decades uh, at a, a Ford plant in Indiana. But Really, I came to it as a, a professional organizer, someone who had learned some skills working on political campaigns, and I wanted to be able to apply that to something else. And so in uh, early 2011, uh, I started with uh, the American Federation of State, County, and Municipal Employees, that's AFSME, which represents mm-hmm. public sector workers all over the country. And after three years, left there uh, and landed where I am now at Service Employees International Union. You got your start in union organizing, and that's been pretty um, satisfying for you, right? I mean, yeah, yeah. In what ways did your have is your experience in union organizing? How did that impact your decision to run for office? Oh, that's uh, that's a great question. So, I mean, you know, as as an organizer, um, you know, I see the job of an organizer to uh, empower folks uh, to fight for changes uh, that they want to see in their workplaces, in their communities. That's sort of how I've always summed it up. And for me, political campaigns have the capacity to do the same thing. 
they often don't, of course. Uh, campaigns, uh, especially at the higher levels, turn into just a money game where uh, whoever buys up the most TV and, and internet ads uh, usually wins the race. Uh, but with a local campaign, you have the capacity to really bring people together uh, around a set of issues or a vision, uh, in this case, a vision for Kentucky uh, that's inspiring, and do the, the grassroots work of knocking on doors and making phone calls that, that can get you over the finish line. And so uh, I, I've spent years as a union organizer, uh, you know, getting into workplaces and talking to workers and figuring out what makes them tick and, and helping them get the tools uh, to fight for changes uh, in their workplace and community. And that's kind of the approach that I wanted to take to politics. And, you know, some of my, um, you know, the, the folks that I look up to in politics, uh, like uh, Senator Bernie Sanders, uh, Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez, uh, take mm -hmm. a similar approach. There, there's no reason that we can't and shouldn't apply the principles of community organizing, or in my case, union organizing, to politics. Because at the end of the day, as far as I'm concerned, politics should be about empowering people. Yeah, and there's there's no better way to do that than through organizing them with some purpose or goal in mind. Right, exactly. Well, were, were there any particular issues that you were especially passionate about addressing through government service that you thought perhaps uh, you couldn't do in your current role as a union organizer? Well, I... I've never really thought about it in terms of this or this. I really I think that um, there's different uh, different ways that that we can go about creating uh, change and, and and making progress. I don't. I didn't run for office necessarily because I thought I wasn't doing enough as a union organizer. But again, as as an organizer, you know, I'm spending a lot of time pushing people to to take risks and step out and, and do something that maybe uh, makes them uncomfortable, being a leader, speaking in front of a crowd, these sorts of mm -hmm. things. And the question I sort of asked myself when I found out that the longtime state rep for my district, Jim Wayne, was retiring was, do I have any excuse not to? There's a lot of people that I've met doing this work um, who I thought you know would, would be by my side, if I did do it, uh, my, my movement, you know, the labor movement has been talking for years about the need to quote unquote, run more of our own. And I couldn't come up with a good reason not to, I'm privileged to have a life and a career that allowed me to do the work of running for office without ending up destitute, uh, because it's, you know, it's trying to run for office if you're not a millionaire. Absolutely. And costly. Um, exactly. And, and so I couldn't come up with any good reason, uh, why I shouldn't do it. And, and I thought it might be a good opportunity win or lose to champion some of the issues that I've worked on, raising the minimum wage, making sure that, uh, low income and working class folks have access to healthcare, make sure that, uh, the jobs that are being created under, the so-called recovery uh, are good jobs that pay living wages and, and allow people to get ahead in life. And I didn't see uh, anyone else entering the race at the time who I thought would champion those particular issues. And uh, absent any excuse to not do it, I jumped in. Obviously, I mean, since you ran for office, you're convinced that it's possible to make some significant changes to the system to affect people's lives. Do you, do you still feel 
like the system salvageable or do you think it's too badly broken? You know, I, uh, <laughs> I think if for no other reason than to maintain my own peace of mind, I try to be optimistic about these sorts of things. I mean, you know, uh, in addition to being, uh, an organizer and a writer, I, I like reading history a lot. I think if you look at our, our nation's history, um, there are plenty uh, of examples when, uh, things were far more broken than they are now. And, mm-hmm. and that's not to downplay uh, where we are right now by any stretch of the imagination. But I have to believe that, that uh, you know, if we can, can keep resisting, keep pushing, uh, that we're going to eventually come out on the other side. I, you know, I, I reject the notion that there is some time in our past when things were, quote unquote, great, right? That's one of my big issues with the Make America Absolutely. Great Again uh, fallacy. Um, so this idea that under Bill Clinton, were poor folks doing better? Uh, not really. Um, no, nope. you know, and, and so we see there's, there's sort of this myth that like, you know, under, under Trump, uh, you know, issues of, of working class folks, wages and whatnot is somehow worse. Honestly, both parties have not been great on those issues for decades. Um, of course, on other things, we're seeing a lot of terrible things happening. The uh, what's happening with migrants at the border and what's happening right now with the government shutdown. A lot of these things right. really are kind of unprecedented, but uh, there are, there are shining lights out there. You know, I, I consume a lot of media to sort of stay tapped into what activists and organizers and artists are doing on the ground in communities all over this country. And it's not the sort of thing that you often hear in sort of the mainstream media but good people are doing really good work, really difficult work every day. And people who don't really have uh, the, the, the luxury of checking out of the system. Um, I think that's a really privileged thing to be able to do. Um, sure. To say, I, I'm not interested in politics or, or the system's too broken. Um, and we can do two things at once. We can say the system is broken and, 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 and do the, the organizing on the ground, uh, the sort of direct action, mutual aid type work, uh, but also continue to uh, interact with the quote unquote system uh, to try to turn things around. I think when we withdraw from the system saying it's broken, um, we're really just throwing it to the wolves. Yeah. Giving it to the people who are the the folks who aspire to that kind of power that's right but and, and therefore perhaps are the ones who ought at least uh be able to hold it mm-hmm. that's right <laughs> i mean the question i'm trying to wrap my own head around is you know is is if the question is about whether or not we can change things fundamentally to address the kinds of uh, issues that you're talking about, both with respect to um, uh, income inequality and racism and homophobia and misogyny, all those things. Uh, is being in office the best place or the worst place uh, to oversee change? Does that make sense? Yeah, no, I think it does. And, and you know, one of the things I worried about most when I was running uh, and and didn't know yet how the election would turn out was I was worried that I would get to Frankfurt and sort of forget where I had come from. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, not for any reason particular to me, but because 
I, I've known uh, both personally and just from, from reading and watching the media uh, that, that that sort of thing happens. Someone goes in a, a bright eyed and bushy tailed uh, idealist and uh, within their first term, they are a, uh, a creature of, of Frankfurt. And, uh, you know, I, I, uh, I tried to steel myself against that. You know, the question of whether change is possible in those roles, I think, comes down to staying rooted in where you come from. And so one of the things that, mm-hmm. that I had talked to folks about when I was out knocking doors was that if I ever put up a piece of legislation, I didn't want just the signatures of my legislative colleagues on there as co-sponsors. I wanted to seek out citizen co-sponsors. I wanted to us to go door to door in the district and have folks in this community sign on to a piece of legislation, or if they, they didn't want to uh, tell me why and hear it from them directly. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's, it's little things like that, that I think we can, can do to a empower uh, the constituency, but B, stay rooted ourselves. Uh, you know, folks who, who are in elected office can stay rooted in the community uh, that they come from because there are any number of people in Frankfurt walking the halls of the Capitol Annex where the offices are uh, who will gladly tell legislators how they think they should vote. Um, yes. Uh, folks with uh, expensive suits and fancy briefcases, I mean. And uh, so, so making sure that you're staying rooted in what's going on in in your community, I think, uh, is the best way to, to make sure that, that you are, um, staying true to, to the, the message that, that got you elected. You're never going to create change. Uh, if you, you, uh, allow yourself to be gobbled up by uh, a system that doesn't want change. Yeah. And you, you mentioned a really good way of trying to avoid that. I mean, you know, one of the one of the sort of tropes of politics right now, especially national politics, is the sort of public distaste for PAC money. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the the all too uh, familiar private stance of receiving that PAC money anyway. But you're you're saying something even more interesting to me. Uh, about sort of remaining unbeholden to uh, to outside interests is by by sort of going back repeatedly to the people who are your constituents and asking them not only what do they like but whether or not they're willing to sign on uh, to the kinds of initiatives legislative initiatives that you're talking about. I haven't heard that before, but I really like that. How did people react to that when you? when you propose that to them? I mean, for the most part, it, it was a, a really popular idea. And, you know, this is not, not a new idea necessarily. You know, uh, you see some, some federal, uh, you know, members of Congress do things like this. But I've yet to see anyone uh, really pursue it here in Kentucky. Now, you, you see it from the opposite side, which is to say, you know, I remember, I, I want to say it, it was... Uh, I'm not going to speculate which legislator it was. One of the legislators during the right to work battle in January of 2017 picked up mm-hmm. a stack of messages that had been left on the legislative message line for them uh, by constituents. It was this you know, massive stack of messages, hundreds or even more, uh, saying they did not want to see this law passed. Um, and it was a, a, a rhetorically 
you know, powerful thing, right? Seeing uh, in exactly. stark contrast there, this is, this is what the people are saying. Why don't we uh, do that the other way and say, you know, look, there are, uh, here are 3,500 signatures from people in my district signing on uh, to this piece of legislation. This is what they want. They put their, their pen to paper. Um, I think that can be a really powerful thing. Clearly. I, I mean, that's the sort of thing that gives people some ownership in the process of governance. And, um, you know, that's one of the things I think that people feel most dispirited by right now is that regardless of what they want, there are people with power who are living as if, at least practically speaking, they don't care. Mm-hmm. Going, if that goes on too long, that can only lead, it seems to me, to uh, a sort of across-the-board cynicism that's and exactly some sense that you, you start to wonder at some point if that's not a, uh, a bug but a feature mm-hmm. of the strategy. Absolutely. No, I mean, uh, if you look at the, the, the National Republican Party as it is today, and this is a party that uh, runs on – uh, the notion that government doesn't work and then they get into office and they prove it, right? That's the old, uh, exactly. And, you know, if you, uh, just beat people down so much with the futility and the banality and the, the, the sheer just sort of ridiculousness of the legislative process and and the political system, eventually they're going to check out and it's going to be easier for you and you won't have to sneak around as much to pass terrible, unpopular legislation. I mean, I get incredibly frustrated when I look at things like, uh, well, you, you and I were there together, uh, last summer, the, the shenanigans at the state Capitol with the poor people's campaign. And then this legis uh, this, uh, over the holidays, the, the snap uh, special session that the governor pulled to try to ram through this pension bill again. And then day one of the the regularly scheduled special session that started a couple of weeks ago, there's this posting of new rules for how to comport oneself in the Capitol, including no cameras, no recording devices. It, it, it's all of these, these things that are, are supposed to make us feel completely powerless. That's how they want us to feel. And, you know, the hope is that the the less uh, salty uh, among the uh, the folks opposed to their agenda will just not even bother. Um, you know what? Screw it. It's not worth it going up to print. I can't even take a picture uh, with my phone. Um, you know, and and that's what they want. And so I think you know those of us again who who have the the luxury of being able to to go to Frankfurt or to go to Metro Council meetings for that matter or what have you. Uh, need to keep showing up because this is exactly what they want is for people to be turned off uh, by, by the, in some cases, illegality, but the corruption of the process. The process is corrupt in as much as it is, it, it is designed, I think, as you say, to, to disincentivize participation That's right. by those people who have uh, any notion that they can change things. I mean, one of the things that was included among those rules, and this is a direct result of the Poor People's Campaign last summer in Kentucky, where uh, the Poor People's Campaign was refused entrance into the Capitol except two by two. Mm-hmm. Um, and two could go in and nobody else could could go in until two people came out. And we fought that. 
But now what the, the rules say is that any grouping of four or more people is a, um, is an assembly. Mm. So if you go into the Capitol with more than four people, they can, they can treat you as a group, you know, which is, a, a, yeah, it's, it's a slight, a slight improvement on last summer, um, which, so they can say, well, we, you know, we heard the people and, you know, we've loosened things up, but that's just a sham. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and that, that's actually an analysis of it. I, I hadn't heard or hadn't thought of that they were actually trying to come off like they were uh, improving things by doing it that way. I, I just saw it as kind of a, a slightly better extension of, of last summer. But I mean, the thing that's, that's, that's frustrating about this is uh, I think for a lot of folks is, you know, I, I hear people say, well, surely they can't do that. Right. <laughs> and like, you know, I have to sort of scratch my head. I mean, who do you think is, you would be wrong? Who do you think is going to stop them? Like, you know, exactly. when the people who make the laws don't follow the laws, let's think through this logically. What's going to are the Kentucky State Police going to arrest the governor for violating open meetings laws? No. Uh, how do you think this is going to play out? No, they absolutely can do it, and and they they will continue to do it. Uh, the only check on on these sorts of abuses of power remains organized, vigilant people rising up and, and demanding things be done differently up to and including removing people from office. Um, and, and, uh, you know, th- there has been, you know, one of the, the things that I think, uh, has been a bit troubling to me as we've sort of, uh, as, as Matt Bevin came into office and we, we had a Republican majority swept into Frankfurt and then Donald Trump was elected. There's been a, a sort of reflexive uh, appeal to other authorities when the authorities we don't like are doing something bad. Um, you know, Andy Bashir has been called on countless times throughout all this uh, to lend a hand, and, and he has played a, a, an important role in, in helping different activist groups. But I think that we sell ourselves a little short. Let me, let me yeah. just pause and say, and say for the listeners who, who aren't familiar, Andy Bashir's our uh, uh, attorney yes, general, sorry. the state attorney general. And, mm-hmm. and I think we sell ourselves short when we uh, sort of constantly r- rely on on some higher authority to sort of help us out because the reality is uh, now Andy Bashir is running for governor and if he's elected, we don't know who the next attorney general is going to be. It may be someone who's not going to be able to help us. Uh, and, and in the meantime, perhaps our organizing muscles will have grown a little weak from underuse. So I think it's important that, mm-hmm. that at the same time as we are, are trying to, to fight back by appealing to someone like the attorney general or uh, appealing things to the courts at the same time, we've got to be continuing the organizing work because, uh, you know, as we see, the, the, the courts are as political as any other branch of government. And they're going to sometimes rule in our favor and they're going to sometimes rule against us. And th- th- they cannot be relied upon to, uh, to always, always save us. Yeah. And there seems to be a, an identifiable trajectory in uh, response to this kind of what I would consider poor governance. It sort of feels like uh, those folks get you whipped up mm-hmm. and they get everybody's passions high. But we all realize that you can't stay angry forever. Mm-hmm. 
and 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 nobody wants to have that kind of tension in their lives. And so the let down, I mean, you know, when it stops, people say, you know, I would rather do just about anything than have to go back and do that again. Mm-hmm. And so if you get whipped up about small things, you have no more energy when the time comes uh, to organize and to and to protest and to stand against, to run against these these moves and the people who make them when the time comes for something much bigger. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's sort of like a, a, you know, death by a thousand cuts or something. We're, we're constantly just getting hit day in and day out and it is exhausting. And then, um, you know, uh, uh, some big thing can, can seemingly where pop up and we're too exhausted to rouse ourselves to the cause of fighting it. And I do think that it's more, uh, as you put it, a, a, a feature than a bug. All right. Well, let me, I mean, let's shift a little bit to, to, to talk about the environment that uh, gives rise, the, the, the sort of climate that gives rise to this felt sense of urgency uh, that many people have that getting involved in politics or in um, social justice activism is extraordinarily important right now. I mean, the, in the 2018 uh, midterm elections, which we just went through, uh, there, it was full of stories of people who decided since 2016 in the presidential election to run for office for the first time. Is that, is that a, a, I take that to be a good thing. Do you think that's a good thing? And, and, and would you encourage, especially given your, your knowledge of uh, the political scene, but also your experience as someone who's run for office, would you encourage people who've never been formally involved in politics to be uh, to, to run for office. Yes. Yes. A thousand times. Yes. Uh, no doubt about it. I would encourage folks to, and, and here's why, you know, um, some of the, the most exciting, uh, in my opinion, races here in, in, in Kentucky, uh, in the midterms last year were, um, there were two, uh, state house races, uh, in Louisville, um, uh, Nima Kolkarni and Josie Raymond are two um, young yes. first-time candidates who ran for state representative and won. In both cases, there was an incumbent Democrat actually in their seat. So neither of their seats were actually a net pickup for uh, the Democratic uh, caucus here in, in the Kentucky legislature. But uh, what what effect it did have was bringing some new blood and some fresh ideas to uh, state capital in dire need of such things. And I think that can only ever be uh, a good thing. I mean, I've been going to to democratic party meetings, uh, and functions and events for uh, over a decade now going on 13 years since I was a, a college freshman. And well, yeah, God bless well, you. And, and, I've been to those sure, meetings. <laughs> and, and, and since becoming uh, a union organizer, going to fewer of those going to more labor and social justice and kind of activist spaces actually. But of course, return to the Democratic Party kind of scene uh, when running for office. And there are some really, really good, well-meaning people uh, in the rank and file who attend uh, functions like that. But there's also uh, very much, you know, a pervasive sense of of same old, same old. And yeah, yeah, and, and, you know, that's right, exactly. And 
while while we don't have a machine quite in the sort of Tammany Hall sense anymore where some boss mm-hmm. can just dictate uh, what happens, there still is a machine in, in practical terms. And uh, I think the only good can come from sort of uh, shaking some of the dead branches out of that tree. And and so I, I encourage people to do it. That being said, um, obviously you've already alluded to, and, and I've spoken at length to a lot of folks about this. It's an arduous thing uh, to run for office, but it doesn't have to be miserable. Um, you know, mm-hmm. it's sort of like training for an athletic event. It can be, it can be arduous uh, while still being fun. You know, I, I, I think a lot of people, um, leave the, the, you know, the campaign trail having, uh, come up short, you know, not winning, uh, with a bad taste in their mouth. And I didn't really have that. Um, I, I feel good about what we accomplished and what we did. And I enjoyed the experience of meeting the people that I did, you know, the, the going to, um, various insider functions, uh, that was my least favorite part of the campaign process. Um, right. It was getting out and knocking on doors and talking to folks or going and sitting in the basements of union halls and, and listening to and, and speaking with uh, rank-and-file workers that I enjoyed. And so anyone who's considering doing it and is worried about uh, you know, how difficult or mind-numbing or arduous the process can be, I, uh, the only uh, thing I can say to that is, if you stay, you know, as we were saying about the legislative process itself, if you stay rooted in the people, um, it, mm-hmm. at least in my experience, that helped the helped me uh, survive the process a lot more. One of the questions I've had personally, uh, because I tend to be fairly introverted, uh, I and I have a role as a minister and a public uh, person that. Uh, requires me to be more extroverted, but it it comes at some cost. Is it possible to to run for office and to be a kind of retail politician and be an introvert? I, I'm so glad you asked this question. So I, I I tell people all the time I'm I consider myself a pretty introverted person. I'm sure you've had the experience of people just aghast at that. You, Derek, you're not. Uh, yeah, yeah, you're introverted. Exactly. Well, I mean, no, I, I really, I really am. I, I'm, I am uh, una, unashamedly uh, the type of person who, um, on on most nights, would rather be at home with a book sitting next to my dog on the couch than out uh, doing something crazy, uh, surrounded by big groups of people. Um, And, but I, I also, I have the capacity. It sounds like you alluded to yourself having it too, to, to dig deep when I need to, to do the things that I need to. And, and uh, by the same token, I have to build in a little time in my schedule to make sure I can kind of rest up afterwards because it is uh, a bit of a draining experience, but right. You know, the, the, I don't, I don't, I don't think that there's, any reason that that someone who tends to be uh, tends to consider themselves more introverted can't run for office, and in fact, you know the folks who are more sort of uh, stereotypically extroverted and sort of charismatic, the the politicians we think of that are like that, are also the mm-hmm. types of politicians who spend a lot more time talking than listening. And uh, as an organizer, and I'm sure as as you. Uh, you can probably attest in, in your line of work too. Um, the real value and the real relationship building and the real power building happens when you listen. 
and when you give mm-hmm. folks the opportunity to make themselves heard. And so uh, I, uh, I took comfort in sort of falling back on my organizing principles uh, that I should spend a lot more time listening than talking. And it, it made me more at peace with the, the process of running for office. I'm not going to say that I, uh, I'm not going to claim that I relished you know, uh, wandering into an event and just sticking my hand out and, and, and shaking hands with folks I didn't know, um, that, that never right. really got easier for me. Um, but I found that, that my own approach to doing it, uh, was, was effective in its own way. And I, I think that it's, it's just another question of bringing some more diverse voices to the table. If it's only the people who are loud and bombastic and charismatic that run for office, then that's what we're going to have. And that's not representative of the people. No, God yeah. help us. <laughs> exactly. Uh, we know, we, we know what that's, the, what that's like. You know, it seems to me when I teach at, at uh, the university, and I've been asked um, on a couple of occasions, you know, my philosophy of, of teaching and so forth. And the first thing I say is in order to be a good professor, you need to figure out how to love your students. Mm. That in as much as you, know, so you leave them every day and you think, oh, my God, these, these people just drive me uh-huh. nuts. Uh, it, it's really it's really difficult to be motivated to do the kind of work necessary to continue uh, doing your best. It, it sounds to me like you figured out a way to 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 love your potential constituents. That the the process of being with them was something that was was meaningful to you. Did you anticipate that when you started? You know, I don't know that I I anticipated it per se. I think I I certainly had a sense that, uh, you know, again, I I went into this with my sort of organizer hat on, and I went into it with that sense of, you know, I'm going to get to know folks. I'm going to get to know some of these neighborhoods and these communities and the issues that are important to them. And and uh, you know, on on any union organizing drive, for instance, you know you're going in blind. You don't know really anyone. You may have one or two contacts, um, and you get to know people. And, and I, have almost always inevitably, uh, fallen in love with the, the, the folks that I'm working with on those sorts of campaigns. I guess I had a sense that that would be the case here, but you know, it, it, it's not as if running for office, and I'm not going to sort of give some, uh, sanitized scripted, uh, answer on this, you know, it's not like there's not parts of running for office that aren't uh, as maddening as what you just described with your students. Um, you know, there were mm-hmm. people who uh, I knocked on their door several times, spoke to them several times during the campaign who never were able to figure out that I couldn't do anything about their potholes. Um, that's your Metro council <laughs> member and that I'm, I'm running for <laughs> state representative and they'd say, well, I, I think I understand now. Good luck with your state senate campaign, and uh, <laughs> that, that state senate, state rep. You know, there, there are frustrating uh, moments uh, on the campaign trail, but for every you know a uh, couple of those, there's another handful of folks like you know uh, the woman who I met uh, with her mother uh, here in, in District 35. It was in January of of, uh, of 2018, and, and who. The, the woman had had uh, I guess had a leg amputated because of an accident a few years ago and was on uh, Medicaid under the Medicaid expansion and was 
terrified uh, about the work requirements that Governor Bevin has been in the process of rolling out with assistance from the Trump administration. You know, and she and her mother yep. were telling me about, you know, trying to figure out how they were going to comply with these new work requirements. This is someone who hasn't even really learned how to walk again since her accident and was just scared and didn't know what was going to happen and asked me, you know, if I would fight for her if I was elected. And I told her I would. And, you know, I, mm-hmm. I don't know what, what happened to her, but I, I know that, you know, for that, in that moment, we went from not knowing one another to, to, to sharing uh, parts of ourselves with one another. And she had no reason to, to necessarily believe me when I said that I would fight for her. Um, but I, I can guarantee you today that I would have had I been elected and I'm going to continue fighting for folks like her to, to get health care. This is all to say that, you know, for all the frustrations uh, and the headaches of it, you know, hearing stories like those as tragic as they are, um, they certainly don't pep you up, but they they give you a little more fuel to keep on knocking the next block of doors. I really like that um, that way of thinking about it, and the fact that you continue to remember this woman; she's top of mind even after all this time. Um, and you know, one could argue that you. In 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 not succeeding in heading to Frankfurt, you, you know you were sort of relieved of all responsibility for this woman. But but it still sounds like you have some some sense that this woman is important, not just as a symbol of something, but as an actual mm-hmm. human being. And I, that's a wonderful thing to to have in a politician. Let me ask you uh, on a practical mm-hmm. note: say. Somebody comes to you and says, Richard, things are bad, and I would like to make a difference, and I want to run for office. What are some of the things that I should know before I, before I do that? And what are some of the things I should know as I'm going through the process myself? You know, uh, the, the interesting thing is I would, have had a, I would have had a different answer to this question before I ran for office than now, you know, I, even though I had worked on political campaigns, I, in 2016, managed a, a school board campaign here in, in Louisville, a, a, a successful school board campaign for my friend, Chris Cobb. And the advice, yep. I even think back on that and the advice sometimes that I gave him, I might not give him now after having been the candidate myself. So that's, that's your little, uh, preface, uh, here, you know, I think a lot of folks would say, you know, learn all of of the issues and and learn how the legislative process works and, you know, learn the structure of the Democratic Party and this, that and the other. Uh, I think it it, it really comes down to a couple of things. One, a gut check about whether this is something you're actually going to be able to get through and, and occasionally even hopefully find joy in. If you are someone for whom, you know, uh, the idea of, like I said earlier, with regards to our introverted nature, if, if you're not someone who can occasionally dig deep and, and uh, pull something out of yourself that maybe you don't use very often, the sort of more extroverted side, it, it's going to be tough, but it, it can be done. Um, but I, I would encourage folks to, to figure out the issues that you're passionate about and make sure that you don't hide that part of yourself. When you're around voters uh, in your district, make sure that they can see the passion and the excitement that you have for that issue. Um, I, I just feel like, you know, as someone who 
who's worked on campaigns, run for office, but also just as a, a voter, I can tell when a politician is giving me the answer that they think they have to give because a poll told them they needed to say it or because uh, they think it's what I want to hear versus when I can hear a, a candidate or a politician talking about something that they're clearly passionate about. Um, and, and voters, uh, voters are, are as individuals, uh, generally, uh, discerning and, and intelligent people, they're going to be able to see through it too. So, uh, you know, I would encourage folks considering running for office to figure out the issues that they're passionate about, do a gut check that they, they want to serve the people and they want to do this for the right reason. And then get out and show people that passion that you have for those issues, because if you show it to them, they will see it and and they'll like it. That authenticity is essential. What about the the mechanics of uh, setting up a sort of campaign team and all that kind of stuff, which is, I think, mystifying to so many people who are who've never done it before do you have any do you have any thoughts there yeah so i mean uh there's all kinds of of resources available to folks who are are thinking about running for office a lot of them uh ones that have emerged just in the past couple of years since donald trump was elected there's almost a cottage industry of organizations that uh are helping mm-hmm. folks do this you know one uh that i i i did a training with this organization uh, about 11 or 12 years ago, uh, it's called, it was called Wellstone action named for the late Senator Paul Wellstone of Minnesota. Paul yeah. Wellstone. And I think they've since rebranded. I don't remember their new name, but they have a book called politics, the Wellstone way. I already had several copies because it's one of those books that I buy and give away to people. And I gave everyone on the campaign team that book and it lays out nuts and bolts of how to run a campaign. Um, but then there's a, another book and, and an affiliated organization called Run for Something. Um, uh, and I can't remember the, the author of that book, but uh, a, a political campaign alum like myself who wanted to help uh, people who want to run for office but don't know how to do it get connected with the resources to do it. Um, and even like, you know, again, someone who like myself who had, had worked on campaigns, I was constantly during the campaign finding myself just Googling questions, uh, ideas for raising money on a political campaign, uh, you know, how to knock on more doors. Um, the resources are out there, uh, if you ask and, and the, the local democratic party here in Louisville, and I'm sure elsewhere around the country has done some, some, some really, uh, novel trainings. Um, but the, the other piece of this, I think that's important to mention is that there's also a, a broad and deep consultant class uh, in in both parties, presumably, but I'm not as familiar with the Republican Party, certainly in the Democratic Party, that is incentivized to, uh, to, to reinforce in people's minds how difficult and hard to understand the campaign world is because that's how they get clients. It, it, it's, you know, running for office is about having enough resources, meaning money, uh, but also people to get your message out to people and, and communicating that message to people. That's it. Um, the rest of it is, 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 uh, stuff that you, you will be able to find people who can help you with it. Um, but, but there's a lot of folks who have a, a really powerful stake in, in convincing potential first time candidates that it's, it's really difficult and you, you, 
really rather not get involved. It's way too complicated to figure it all out. Yeah, there's a there's a cottage industry that relies on people's fear of the complexity in order to be able to make money telling people what they need to do. (laughs) These consultants, that's that that that's important to know that it is possible to do this without having, you know, high power, big dollar uh, consultants. That's right. And, and, you know, the two uh, now state representatives from here in Louisville that I mentioned earlier, um, the the two of them, as far as I know, uh, had, had almost no uh, prior political campaign experience in terms of actually working as staff on a campaign or as a candidate themselves. Uh, and they won. They won over candidates who had um, many years of experience and some of the uh, the best consultants that money can buy. Well, so here's the here's the you know, final question I want to ask: Are you considering running again for something? <laughs> um, I, you know, it, it's uh, it's a good question, and I, I would kind of refer to to what I said earlier about you know. I, I know from from experience knowing these folks that there are a lot of folks who, when they don't win a run for office, uh, leave that experience disenchanted with some bad feelings about the process. Mm-hmm. And I'm grateful that I didn't have that. Um, I grew closer to my friends and my family through the process. I grew closer to my community. And there were some unsavory moments and some some, you know, comments from, from people at the doors and, and experiences that I wouldn't like to repeat again, but overall I really enjoyed the experience, uh, of doing it. And, and, um, should the opportunity present itself, uh, I would, I'd be willing to consider it again. You know, it's going to come down to asking myself that question, uh, that I talked about earlier, which is, is there an opportunity for me to be of service by doing this? And am I up to the challenge of doing what it'll take to win? And if I can answer yes to those two questions, I would certainly explore the opportunity. Well, I will just say uh, that in my estimation, uh, we as a country, as a state, as a metropolitan area would be well served to figure out how to find and cultivate more uh, politicians <laughs> like you. you I, I mean, me I, I really mean that. Um, you know, well, <laughs> I guess I, I was trying to think of, you know, I mean, what, do you, what right. do you call somebody? No, it's fine. We need to change but, the definition of but, politician. Um, well, yeah, it's gotten it's gotten a, 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 a bad rep, and that's part of the cynicism of uh, uh, people being just beaten down mm-hmm. by the whole political game. But, but I honestly think that the kind of vision that you bring to uh, what governing ought to look like is exactly the kind of thing that would make our, um, uh, our politics better. Uh, which I think ultimately is what it's supposed to do, right? I mean, it's supposed to be there to help us figure out the best ways to live together so that everyone can flourish and not just the few who've been blessed or privileged with, with, you know, the, the, the greatest toolkit. And I, I appreciate you saying that, but I, you know, I would also, um, point out that there are, 
an untold number of people out there here in Louisville, across Kentucky and across the United States uh, who are uh, as prepared or, or have similar ideas to me and sharper than me uh, who are being held back for one reason or another by a system that has not been made welcoming to them who uh, it's incumbent on us to help empower to take that step because there are a lot of people out there um, who have just the same ideas as what we've been talking about here this evening, but uh, for whatever reason, uh, haven't been able to make that leap. I think it's our job to to create the conditions for more folks to be able to enter that arena. Richard, I want to thank you uh, so much for this conversation. I've thoroughly enjoyed it, and and it's gotten me thinking about a number of things. Uh, I really appreciate it. So thank you. Thank you, Derek. I appreciate it very much. I want to thank my guest, Richard Becker. And I want to thank you for tuning in to Community of Resistance. Until next time, 